right, if you remain standing, our scripture reading is from Acts chapter 11, just a couple of verses uh, from Acts 11. Uh, let me read beginning in verse 25 and 26. Uh, as uh, Dr. Luke writes, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught <clears throat> great numbers of people The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Why don't we pray together? And uh, All right, let's pray this morning. Lord, we're grateful that uh, you are a God who hears and answers prayer. And so uh, we pray that you would remind us that we have this uh, awesome, powerful connection with you called prayer. And so often prayer is our last resort, not our first resort. So, Lord, <clears throat> this morning we give you praise. And then, Lord, we think of many prayer needs that are in our church family this morning. And, and Lord, we pray now that you would uh, also uh, be with um, our nation, <clears throat> our leaders. Uh, Lord, we thank you and praise you for the release of two hostages from the Middle East. And, Lord, we pray for the 200-plus hostages that are still held there. Lord, we ask and beg that you would protect them uh, keep them safe, and we pray for a, a release of those hostages. Lord, help us to realize that in our chaotic world, that we will not experience true peace until the Prince of Peace returns someday, and you rule and reign on this uh, planet, on this earth. Until then, Lord, we uh, pray that you would help us to uh, put our trust and faith in you, and uh, Lord, give us the peace that passes all understanding, even in the midst of difficulty and trials. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, <clears throat> we've been looking through the book of Acts, and uh, it's quite a long uh, book in the Bible written by Dr. Luke, and there's 28 chapters, and we've been plowing our way through, and uh, we're in chapter 11 this morning. But just a reminder to kind of give us a, some context here, the book of Acts, that the key verse, and it's the outline of the book, is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Spirit of God comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And there's the outline of the book of Acts. Uh, Remember, Jesus has ascended. He told his disciples to wait in the upper room. And so for 10 days they waited between his ascension, and on the the, uh, 10th day, Pentecost happened. The Holy Spirit came down. There was a great message by Peter, and the church was born. 3,000 believers came into the kingdom that day. And the gospel was centered in Jerusalem. That's the first seven verses, or chapters rather, of the book of Acts. But then it says that you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. As you look at chapters 8, 9, and 10, the gospel then spreads out from Jerusalem to the surrounding area of Judea and Samaria. And we see Philip going to Samaria to preach the gospel. As we come to our chapter this morning, we see the church expanding, and now it begins to go to the ends of the earth as the gospel expands. And so the rest of the book, chapter 11 through 26, is all about the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth, and primarily through the apostle Paul's missionary journeys. But this morning, we're going to look at the gospel goes to Antioch. And so in your bulletin, there's a, uh, an insert that has a little map, and that will be helpful for you this morning, because I want you to see where Antioch is in comparison to the geography of Israel. It's highlighted in blue, 
And so what do we know about Antioch, the city of Antioch? Well, in the Roman Empire, the city of Antioch was the third largest city. It was behind Rome, Alexandria, and then Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So we're not talking about a small population. We're not talking about a a small town like Bethlehem where Jesus was born. This is a major metropolitan. It's 300 miles north of Jerusalem, 20 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. With the exception of Jerusalem, Antioch played a more important role in the early church than any other city. It, it kind of became Paul's home base for some of his missionary trips. And so we're going to look at this, this city, which was a, a mixture of cultures and a hustling and bustling city with a high Jewish population probably about 70,000 Jews in the city of Antioch. What else is Antioch known for? Well, Antioch is known for the very first place where followers of Jesus were called Christians. That was in our scripture reading this morning. It says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And so... Followers of Jesus initially were called followers of the way, probably from Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The most popular word used to describe believers in the New Testament is the word disciples. It's used 261 times in the New Testament. The word Christian is only found three times in the New Testament. Here in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, where the people of Antioch first referred to followers of Jesus as Christians, and it was probably not a very popular complimentary term. It was more of a derogatory term. Those are those followers of that that person who claimed to be the Messiah, that Christ person. So it's used here in Acts 11. It's used in Acts chapter 26, verse 28, where King Agrippa is talking to the Apostle Paul, and King Agrippa says, Almost you persuaded me to become a Christian. It's used one other time in the New Testament. First Peter chapter 4, verse 16 says, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And so here we read the word Christian for the first time uh, in uh, Antioch, and it's only used three times in the New Testament. Well, let's look at the text this morning. And we'll look at an outline of the text, and then we'll just finish with a couple of life applications. And so uh, Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 19, uh, is the scattering, the scattering. So remember, earlier in the book of Acts, when we get to Acts chapter 6 and 7, that uh, Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. And he he is stoned and killed for his faith. And then Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, at that time, a great persecution broke out against Christians. And so what did Christians do? Just like happening in the news today in the Middle East, uh, they're scattering. Because to stay in Jerusalem means you might be put in jail or you might be killed. And so now these believers are scattering And um, that's where we pick it up in verse 19 of Acts chapter 11. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word 
only among the Jews. So what did persecution do? And this is all through the New Testament, and this is true today. Persecution makes Christians spread the gospel. So how did the gospel expand? Well, it didn't stay in Jerusalem, but because of persecution, the believers went to different places, and as they went, they shared the gospel. Notice as people are going to Antioch because of persecution, it says that they're spreading the word, but it says only among the Jews, only among the Jews. Uh, We saw last week that uh, Peter had a a vision uh, that God gave to him to really communicate that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel isn't for a certain group of people by race, by ethnicity, Uh, But the gospel is not only for Jews, but the gospel is for everyone. That was a revolutionary concept in the first century. And so this whole idea that the gospel was for everyone took a while to, uh, to spread out and share the news that this wasn't just for Jews, this is for everyone. So those that spread were simply preaching the gospel to Jews, but notice what happens, and that's the next part of our outline, the salvation of many in Antioch. Verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, Gentiles, telling them what? The good news about the Lord Jesus. And we need to be reminded of that phrase. That's what the gospel means. The gospel is the good news. And so here are these others that realize the gospel is not just a a Jewish thing but it is for everyone, and they begin sharing the gospel with the, the Gentiles and the Greeks in Antioch. And it says, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So as they preached the gospel in this major city of the Roman Empire, we don't know how many became followers of Jesus, Christians, but the Bible says many people did. And so there was the salvation of many in Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Well, let's look at what's next in our outline, and we go from the scattering to the salvation of many in Antioch to the sending of Barnabas. The sending of Barnabas, verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem. So think of Jerusalem as kind of a denominational headquarters in the first century. You know, that's where the church started That's where the apostles were for the most part. And so it's kind of like denominational headquarters. And now they get word that the gospel has made its way all the way to Antioch. And there's not only Jews that are coming to faith in Jesus, but Gentiles. And headquarters kind of wants to know what's going on here. And so they say, let's send somebody up to Antioch to find out what's going on in Antioch. And who do they choose? They choose a man by the name of Barnabas. Uh, You remember Barnabas from Acts chapter 4. His name is really Joseph. He's from Cyprus. He's a Greek-speaking Jew. And so let's send Barnabas from Jerusalem to Antioch, 300-mile journey, which is uh, not an easy way to travel in the first century. So Barnabas makes his way to Jerusalem. And it says, when he arrived and saw, the, this is verse 23, the grace of God, what the grace of God had done, he was glad 
and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. And so, um, verse 24, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And so now headquarters sends Barnabas up to Antioch. He meets with those Christians, and he begins to encourage them. Uh, it would not be easy to be a follower of Jesus in the first century in Antioch. It would have been countercultural. And so these new believers need encouragement, and Barnabas goes and encourages them uh, to be faithful followers of Jesus in the midst of a pagan culture, which is where we are today in the United States of America as well. And so Barnabas makes this 300-mile journey. He encourages the believers. But what do new Christians need in their life? New Christians need to be discipled. New Christians need to be grounded in the Scriptures. And so Barnabas has all these new believers. He probably realizes maybe he needs a little bit of help in in training and teaching and disciple these believers. And so we discover in our outline the search for Saul. The search for Saul. Notice what Barnabas does. Verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus... To look for Saul. Tarsus, probably 80 or 90 miles from Antioch. What's Saul doing in Tarsus? Well, that was his hometown. And we read after Acts chapter 9 that Saul becomes a follower of Jesus. He tries to join himself with the disciples in Jerusalem, and they say, No way, we're afraid of you. (laughs) We know what you've been doing, you've been persecuting the church. In fact, there's a movement, a plot by some Jews to kill Saul. So the believers get together with Saul, and Barnabas is involved in this, and they send Saul back to his hometown, Tarsus, really, to to protect him because there was a plot to kill him. And so Barnabas makes this trip to Tarsus to find Saul. Sometimes when you read Scripture, it's good just to use your imagination like, how did Barnabas find Saul in Tarsus? I mean, he probably doesn't have an address. He doesn't, he doesn't have a GPS. He doesn't have one of these to like text him and say, hey, what, you know, where are you at? Uh, we don't know. Maybe the Holy Spirit providentially revealed to, uh, to Barnabas exactly where he was. Um, I have a feeling that most people or a lot of people in Tarsus probably knew where Saul lived. Paul was kind of a prominent person. He was, he was a Pharisee. He was educated at the, the, the feet of Gamaliel, one of the uh, Jewish teachers that was well known in his day. I have a hunch a lot of people probably knew where Saul uh, lived. And Saul had a reputation, whether good or bad. And perhaps uh, Barnabas just gets to Tarsus and starts, uh, you know, asking people. But he finds Saul. What does he do? Verse 26, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. What happens? For a whole year, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So Barnabas gets Saul. They make their way back to Antioch where there's all these new Christians, and for one whole year, you have this team teaching 
And it would have been really encouraging teaching to learn uh, God's truth from Saul. <clears throat> Saul. <clears throat> I was just talking to our oldest grandson that, you know, his voice might be changing in the next couple of years, but uh, <clears throat> Saul and, uh, and, and, and Barnabas, what a great team teaching they were for a whole year. How encouraging that had to be. Uh, to the church there in Antioch as they grounded those new believers in God's truth. Well, let's finish our outline here. The the last part of the text is verses 27 through 30. And so it's the severe famine, the severe famine. Notice how this chapter ends. Uh, Verse 27, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So, So just pause there. When you read scripture, it always refers to uh, people going up to Jerusalem or down to Jerusalem. That's not north, south, east, or west. It's the fact that Jerusalem had a high elevation. And so anytime you're going to Jerusalem, you're kind of going uphill. The elevation of Jerusalem is about 2,700 feet above sea level. So Denver's a mile-high city. Jerusalem was a half a mile high. So when it says they're going up to Jerusalem or down from Jerusalem... They're talking about the, the elevation of Jerusalem uh, being half a mile high above sea level. So there's some prophets that come down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Actually, it's 300 miles north. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the Roman Empire. And so here's this prophet. And there's, uh, he's in Antioch and he says... There's going to be a severe famine coming. Now, what's the test of a true prophet? The Old Testament gives us this. How do you know a prophet is a true prophet from God? They have to be right 100% of the time. If you're truly a prophet of God and God's speaking to you and giving a, a word or a prophetic message, if it's from God, it's going to happen. And Agabus was a prophet from God, and it, it happened. There was a great famine in the Roman Empire. You remember 23 years ago when the calendar was flipping from 1999 to 2000? Y2K. Remember all the predictions? Oh, man, some of them got crazy. You know, man, you need need to stockpile. Our country, you know, all the computers are going to crash. I had a Christian friend of mine. We had him over the house, and he was talking like, we're going to need guns to protect, you know, those of us that are growing uh, food on our, our property. And, uh, you know, are, are you armed? Are you ready? Because this, and like, man, you know, what's, what's happening here? And I don't know how you processed all this, but here's a prediction. A great famine is coming. And Agabus predicts this famine, and that's exactly what happened. That historians tell us that during the raid of the emperor Claudius, he reigned from 41 A.D. to 54 A.D., uh, that in the year 44 to 45 A.D., there was a great famine across the Roman Empire. And what happens when there's a famine? Uh, people need help, don't they? Uh, food gets scarce. There, there becomes a humanitarian crisis because of, of a famine. And so this worldwide famine uh, that it w- was predicted by Agabus came to fruition, 
And uh, Dr. Luke puts that in parenthesis for us. This happened during the reign of Claudius. But notice what the church at Antioch did. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. What did these new believers do? I mean, they've just come to faith in Christ. They're 300 miles north of the headquarters in Judea and Samaria. And what they do is they take an offering. And they're concerned about their fellow believers that are 300 miles to the south. They're concerned about uh, people and their need for food through this great famine. And so they send their gift to the church in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria that is to be sent, and Barnabas and Saul deliver that. How encouraging that must have been when the famine came. That all of a sudden, here's a family that's uh, that's struggling because of the famine, and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door, and uh, there's these uh, representatives from the church at Jerusalem And uh, they either have food or they have a financial gift. And they said, you know what? There's some Christians that are 300 miles north of you. They're relatively new believers, but they care about you. And here's some money or here's some food so you can feed your family. And so in spite of the severe famine, here's an example of a church that reached out and generously gave to meet the needs of believers that were hundreds of miles away. Reminds me of what our church did recently in the month of June. And we got connected with uh, some missionaries that uh, uh, John and Becky Shirley, who are with uh, ABWE, a mission organization, uh, and uh, Live Global, and uh, John and Becky have a ministry of rescuing kids off the streets and putting them in homes of church-going people and seeing them then go to church and be trained in the truth of the gospel. And when John presented that ministry and when John presented that need earlier this year, we as a church knew that uh, we need to do something. So in June, we gave them a check for $20,000 that would rescue 40 kids off the streets And last week, we saw some pictures of some smiling faces of some young kids that are not just 300 miles away, but probably 1,200 miles away, that now aren't living on the streets, but they're in homes, and they're going to go to church, and they're going to hear the good news of the gospel. Well, that's what those early believers did, and they reached out, and they met a need. Well, this morning we're going to look at just a couple of quick applications from our text this morning, two life lessons that we can uh, be encouraged with and apply to our lives. And so let's look look at them as we um, begin to conclude here. Here's the first one. The spread of the gospel in the first century was through a lay movement of ordinary believers. That the spread of the gospel in the first century, was through a lay movement of ordinary believers. Yes, the apostles preached God's word and God's message. 
Yes, Peter stood up on Pentecost and preached a great sermon, but what happened then as, as those believers who were from all over the known world because of the Feast of Pentecost, they then went back to their homelands, and what did they do? They spread the gospel. And so the spread of the gospel in the early church was through ordinary believers just like you and me. And God used persecution to spread the word from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And as those believers were persecuted, they went and they told people the good news about Jesus. And God's plan to reach the world with the gospel hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Uh, We know that his plan is, is the same, that God wants to reach people. And how does God want to reach people? Well, he wants to spread the gospel through us. There's four searching questions in Romans chapter 10, as the Apostle Paul writes about the fact that the gospel is for everyone, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he asks four questions. How then can they call on the one in whom they've not believed? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? There's millions of people that have never heard the name of Jesus on our planet. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? The word is proclaiming or heralding to them. And how can they preach unless they are sent? So why do we have a missionary outreach at Community Bible Church of 12 or 13 missionaries that we support and pray for? Uh, It's to get the gospel to the ends of the world. But let me remind you, it starts right here where we live. It starts in our Jerusalem with our neighbors, our co-workers, our acquaintances. 2 Corinthians 5, we're all Christ ambassadors The Great Commission is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and God wants to use you and me to do that. So the spread of the gospel was through a lay movement of ordinary believers just like you and me. But secondly, our life lesson is this. Barnabas and the new believers in Antioch model for us a much-needed ministry of encouragement. That Barnabas and the early church new believers in Antioch model for us a much-needed ministry of encouragement. What's interesting, when you read about Barnabas in the New Testament, he's mentioned three times. And every time Barnabas is mentioned, he's encouraging somebody. So the first time he's mentioned is in Acts chapter 4, and it's in verse 36. And the church has just begun, and here's what this fellow by the name of Joseph was his name, but the disciples nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas has a piece of property, he sells it, He brings it to the church of Jerusalem and the apostles, and he says, take this money and give it to anybody in the church that has a need. That would be encouraging, wouldn't it? That would be encouraging for uh, families that were going through hard times, or maybe somebody had lost their job, or maybe there's a single mom who's struggling, and all of a sudden the, the leaders of the church of Jerusalem, through Barnabas' generosity, come up and come to their door and and pass on a gift to them. Barnabas uh, was an encourager 
to the church at Jerusalem. The second time we read about Barnabas is in Acts chapter 9, and it has to do with Saul after Saul is, is saved. And after Saul has his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, it says when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the church, the disciples. He tried to come to church, and they said, no way. They were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how he in Damascus had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So what's Barnabas do? Barnabas comes alongside of Saul, and he begins to vouch for him. He begins to stand with him. And he says, no, you don't understand. This man's life's been changed. I've heard this man preach the, preach the good news of Jesus, and he's done a 180. And so Barnabas was one who, when Saul needed a friend, when Saul needed someone to vouch for him and stand with him, Barnabas came alongside of him to encourage him. The third time we read about Barnabas in the book of Acts, and the last time he's mentioned, is here in Acts chapter 11. So here's uh, Jerusalem headquarters. There's a bunch of new believers up in Antioch, 300 miles north, and the church leaders say, okay, who could we send that would be an encouragement to them? <laughs> the obvious choice is Barnabas. By the way, don't we all like to be around encouraging people? People that, that, that have kind of an encouragement mindset are fun people that you want to be around. And Barnabas was one of those people that was always giving the gift of encouragement. And so uh, Barnabas gives a model of encouragement, and, and so do the new believers in Antioch. Because what did they do? They saw a need, and they responded to meet the need of those uh, believers 300 miles south of them. And so what do uh, you and I all need this morning? Uh, we need encouragement. I have said many times, I have never met one person in my life that's ever um, made an appointment with me or wanted to chat with me and said, I am just way too encouraged. I mean, I'm getting way too much encouragement. So just, just kind of have everybody back off. No, we one thing we have in common, we all need encouragement. What did Jesus, Jesus say? In this world, you will have trouble, tribulation. But then he encourages us and says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so let's just think about this ministry of encouragement uh, just as we close this morning, the how-to of encouragement. And uh, so I'm going to give you three words um, that I'll start with the letter L. Uh, how can we be good encouragers? And here's the first word. It's the word listen. Listen. James chapter 1, verse 19. James writes a very familiar passage of Scripture about the fact that God gave us two ears and one mouth. James 1, 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen Slow to speak, slow to become angry. And our natural tendency, human tendency, is to do the opposite of those three things. 
We are not quick to listen. Most of us, including myself, are sometimes thinking about something else or how we're going to respond to what this person is saying. We're not quick to listen. And we're not slow to angry. We often get angry quickly. And we're quick to speak. And James says, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. If you have somebody that's a good listener in your life, you've got a good friend. Um, I can recall many, many times when um, I've had the opportunity to talk to people just that might, might want some counsel or a listening ear, and I've sat down with them and basically have listened to them for 25, 30 minutes and not really said a whole lot. And at the end, they said, oh, you've been so helpful. Thank you. <laughs> and they're like, I really didn't do anything. It's just, it's just listening. It's just empathetic listening. And so we need to be good listeners to one another. James says, let's be quick to listen. And of course, if you're going to be a good listener, it means you need to interact with people. You need to engage in fellowship. Uh, you need to engage in conversation and fellowship with each other. And so uh, listen, and then the second L is learn. Uh, so you need to, as you're listening, you want to learn what's going on in this person's life. And for some people, this comes naturally. You can begin to ask some questions like, you know, how are you doing this week? Or what's going on in your life? How can I pray for you? Uh, and, and then you need to learn uh, what the need is in their life or what they're experiencing in their life. This happens as you become a others-oriented person. There are some people on the planet that never get out of the fact that their whole life is self-centered and everything revolves around them. And Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, what was the mind of Christ? It was a mind of humility. It was a mind of others-centered. And so you listen and then you learn, and here's the last, the last one, and then you love. You think, what action can I take to encourage my friend, my fellow believer? This is what John says is a mark of a true believer. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. And so we listen, we learn, and then we act, we initiate, we love in the name of Christ. So here are some practical ways to, to encourage me to, to initiate all this. How, how can this, what does this actually look like? Well, Hebrews 3.13 says uh, to the Hebrew believers, uh, encourage one another daily. Encourage one another daily. Now, we all need daily encouragement. Uh, one way we encourage each other is what we're doing this morning. Hebrews chapter 10 says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but come together and do what? And encourage one another. So it's hard to encourage an empty pew, but 
the Bible says, keep meeting together for the purpose of worship, but also for the purpose of encourage. So your presence, just your very presence, is an encouragement. We can encourage one another through prayer. James 5.16, James says, pray for one another. Is anybody in trouble? <laughs> Let him pray. And so praying for one another and, and uh, being vulnerable and transparent enough to share your need with another trusted believer or with a church family. And that takes humility. But uh, God wants us to do that. God wants us to, to share uh, what's going on in our lives. Uh, we encourage each other through Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 um, talks about the, the return of Christ and the rapture and the reunion. And, and it says, uh, verse 18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. With, with what words? The words of Scripture. And so the promises of God and the Word of God is an encouragement to each of us. We encourage each other through encouraging words, through our speech. Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And we underestimate the power of our words. Uh, words can, can destroy or words can build up. And Ephesians 4 says that once we're a follower in Jesus, our words should be used exclusively for what? Building each other up, encouraging one another and in our world today with technology, it is so simple to do. You can write a note. You can send a text. You can make a phone call. Our words can encourage one another. And guess what? It doesn't cost a whole lot, does it? It doesn't cost a whole lot just to think of some encouraging words uh, to, to share with somebody. I'll, I'll share... This this morning, I don't know what day I came up to the pulpit and I was uh, looking for something. And on the pulpit was this little three by five card. And someone's not signed. I don't know who who it was, but someone wrote about a dozen words. It says, "Thank you for leading and loving our church well. You are so appreciated." probably took 20 seconds to write that. You know, when pastors get words of encouragement like this, they keep it on their desk for a long time. <laughs> you probably do too. Simple, 20 seconds, a world of encouragement. So through it's our, we can do it through our words. We can do it through the ministry of listening. We can do it perhaps in some cases like Barnabas did and we have financial resources and someone's hurting and so we give them a financial gift or we can help them with a project. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says two are better than one and just the encouragement of someone who is overwhelmed with something and needs a hand and just to have somebody come alongside them and help is a great, great encouragement. And as Scripture tells us, when we do that, guess who gets encouraged as well? There's a boomerang effect. Proverbs says, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And so not only does the person that got that on the receiving end get encouraged, 
But the person that gave the encouragement gets built up and encouraged with the fact that God used them to encourage somebody else. So my challenge to you this morning is to be a Barnabas to somebody. And um, whoever God's put you in proximity with, whether it's this morning or in your neighborhood or your place of work, I guarantee you they need encouragement. And it's something that we need to be intentional about. And God will bless us for it. And God will grow us for it. And God's name will be honored and glorified. Let's, uh, let's pray together this morning. Lord, thank you for... Um, this text in Acts 11, that uh, the gospel didn't just stay locally. Lord, thank you that the gospel didn't just stay with the Jews, or most of us this morning would not be in the family of God, but that the gospel is for everyone. Lord, help us to be reminded that you have chosen us as your children, as your ambassadors, to spread the good news of the gospel to a world that is desperately looking for hope. And Lord, this morning we pray that um, we would be intentional about the ministry of encouragement. Lord, thank you for so many uh, over the years that have been encouragement in my life. Through just simple spoken words, through a note, through a phone call, through a text, through a financial gift. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to use us and help us to be intentional intentional about encouraging one another for your honor and for your glory, and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.